Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, as we look at your word, that your spirit would illumine our minds. He would turn on the lights so we can see what it is that your son is teaching his disciples what it is that your spirit superintended at the hand of Luke so that we as your people in your church would have your word and know your son. Pray that as we look at and consider the Lord's Supper, Father, we pray that we would be faithful to your word, that we would rejoice in your son and the momentous occasion of what he began on this night. Father, and that we would see the Lord's table differently than we've seen in the past, that we would exalt your Son at this and see the great privilege we have in this ordinance that you have given to the church for the sake of your glory and the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in an era, you all know this, we live in an era in which entertainment dominates our culture. We love entertainment. Everyone expects to have their senses overwhelmed with delight. We want to have our sight overwhelmed with entertaining imagery, so we buy bigger and better televisions. We want to have our ears overwhelmed with beautiful sound, so we purchase audio equipment which provides crisper and clearer sound. We want our taste buds to be overwhelmed with rich flavors, and so we frequent increasingly more extravagant restaurants. We desire to be entertained. The Lord has designed us to gaze upon beauty and to listen to well-composed music and to delight in in delicious foods. However, we have turned those God-given desires into idols to which we bow down and worship. We don't enjoy those things as an enjoyment of the Lord. We enjoy them as ends in themselves. And since we have the technology and wealth to keep upping the ante on entertainment, we keep doing so. Frankly, we all know that entertainment is one of our culture's golden calves, isn't it? Sadly, entertainment has become an obsession for the church as well. Pastors across America are working overtime 
to keep up with the demands of people for entertainment so they can keep their seats filled. And so we have brought the culture's golden calf into the house of the Lord and begun to worship it. When Pastor Jason and I, who's one of the associate pastors here, were planning our worship service at the beginning of this church plant, we actually had several meetings and prayer and read different books, etc., and thought, how are we going to design the worship service? We wanted to go back to something similar to what the early church was doing, what the reformers were doing at the time of the Reformation, and and during our discussion, we made the intentional decision to look to the Bible for what we should be doing in the worship service, in the worship service of God's people gathered together. And I know that sounds simil- silly. It's like, of course you'd look at the Bible to see what to do with the worship service. But trust me, the heart is wicked and deceitful, and the pull to cave into whatever pragmatic methods it takes to plant a church and to keep people coming is stronger and more subtle and deceptive than you might think. I remember after we planned the worship service, we were a little thrown by it ourselves, and we would actually, after we tore down, because Jason and I were originally pretty much, it was Jason, myself, and Randy Lovegreen. We were basically the setup and teardown team with the sound equipment and getting stuff in and out of the trailer initially, and then a few of you others. And we would do this, and we would put everything back in the trailer, and Jason and I would drive away in the truck with the trailer going, Laughing, going, can you believe people keep coming to this? Can you believe more of them came than last week? So we made an intentional decision to only practice in worship what God commands. We knew he commanded us to sing. We knew he commanded us to read scripture. We knew he commanded us to pray and to preach the word and to gather an offering on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, the Lord's Day, and to baptize and to take the Lord's Supper. We knew he commanded us to do all those things, and for a variety of reasons, we believed we had no right to do in the worship of God those things he hadn't commanded. Thus, we decided we would just relentlessly focus on doing those things he's commanded and doing them faithfully. We knew it would take us a lifetime just to do it faithfully. We believe the Lord commanded what he did. Now I want you to hear this. We believe the Lord commanded in worship what he did as a means of grace. Not grace to justify us or give us our forgiveness of sins or bring us into right relationship and reconciliation with God, but grace to grow us in holiness and to nourish and and build our faith in Christ. We knew he had done that for that purpose. And we believed the Lord would bless what he commanded. But we have on more than one occasion in the process of putting this church together, of planting it and seeing the Lord build it and bring people to us, we have been asked on more than one occasion, in fact, we're frequently asked, why do you do the Lord's Supper every week? Why? Why do you do it every week? It's not just because we love grape juice and crackers. It's not even the oyster crackers that Jason seems to buy, which make us all want to have clam chowder at, at the Lord's table every week, right? That isn't the reason that we do it. But it's a great question that people ask us. Why do you do it every week? Good question. Why do we take the Lord's Supper every week at Sovereign Grace? This morning... I hope to begin answering that question as we look at Luke twenty-two fourteen 14 through 20. 
I hope to begin answering as we look at this passage, why we take it every week. But I want to give you the short answer. Here's the short answer. We do so because it's a visible word. That's a short answer. Because the Lord's Supper and baptism, and if we had people to baptize every week, we'd baptize them every week. But the Lord's Supper and baptism are visible words. What do we mean by that? We preach the word so you can hear the gospel proclaimed. It's an auditory word. We preach it so you can hear it proclaimed. We take the Lord's Supper and baptism so you can see the gospel proclaimed. We believe the Lord's Supper has real spiritual benefit for Christ's people. And we believe, and I want you to hear this because this is a strong claim, we believe that withholding the Lord's Supper would be like withholding the preaching of the word. There's the short answer. That's the short answer. But I, I want to demonstrate the truth of our short answer by providing you the long answer. Okay? I want to provide you the long answer. And so as I do so, though I planned to do it in one sermon this morning, after I wrote the sermon, I realized this was really three sermons. Because there are three reasons why we take the Lord's Supper every week at Sovereign Grace that are akin to why we don't preach once a quarter or once a month, but every week. And why we don't pray once a quarter or once a month, but every week. For the same reason we take the Lord's Supper every week and not once a quarter or once a month. And I want to get into those three reasons over the next three weeks. So today, I want to take on the first reason. Okay, I'll tell you the three reasons, but today I want to take on the first. Here are the three reasons I'm going to go over the next three weeks. Today, next week, the week after that, Brooks Buser's here uh, preaching. And then the week after that is when I'll take the third reason. But here's what they are. We take it first to look back and remember what Christ has done. So the first reason that we take the Lord's Supper, which I'm going to address this week, is that we take it to look back and remember what Christ has done. In other words, we're looking at in the Lord's Supper the fact that our redemption from slavery to sin, our redemption has been accomplished. Second, we take the Lord's Supper every week, which I'll address next week, to fellowship with Christ presently. Do you hear that? So we're looking back to remember we are also taking it to presently fellowship with Christ by his spirit. That's the other reason we take it, which I'll deal with next week. In other words, we look back at our redemption that's been accomplished and we presently take it to enjoy the application of our redemption to us now. You guys follow me on that? Our redemption was accomplished and now our redemption is currently being applied. The benefits of that. And then the last week, I'm going to talk about that we're looking forward to. The last reason, we're looking forward to what Christ will do. That's the third reason we take it. So we look, take it to look back at what Christ has done. We take it to presently enjoy the benefits we have in Christ. And we take it to look forward to what Christ is promising there, what he will do. That's redemption consummated. So if you will, this is not my wording. This actually comes from Richard Barcellus. But if you will, redemption accomplished, redemption currently applied, and redemption consummated at the end. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to take on the first reason this morning, which is remembering what Christ has done for us. Remembering what Christ has done for us. So why do we take the Lord's Supper weekly? And here's your answer, because we are reminded of Jesus' covenantal 
and atoning love for us. Did you hear me that, that? We are reminded every week of Jesus' covenantal and atoning love for us. Look with me at verse 14. And when the hour came... He, that being Jesus, and what's the hour? That's the hour for Passover, and I'm going to deal more with Passover next week. But when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired. Now, I I want to stop there for a second. I want you to hear this. Because in the Greek, this is like the word desire repeated twice for emphasis. I have desired, desired. It's like I've desirously desired. You guys follow what's happening here? This is an emphatic statement of desire. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's like Jesus has this deep abiding desire to eat this Passover meal with them before he suffers. Why? Why does Jesus so deeply desire to eat this Passover meal with them? To understand that, we we need to understand in part what the Passover meal is, which I want to deal with next week. But we also need to understand that it's a normal practice that when you cut a covenant, which is what Jesus is doing here at the cross, he's going to cut a covenant in his own blood. That when a covenant is cut, it's the normal practice to have a meal together. The cutting of the covenant. Making a covenant is establishing a relational bond. It's establishing a relational bond. And when that relational bond is established, a meal generally happens. Think about this in our own context. What do you often do after a wedding? You have a meal. Why do you have a meal at your reception after a wedding? Because we in our culture, even in our culture, tend to celebrate covenants with eating a meal together. Oftentimes you do a big business deal with somebody, and after you sign the contract, you have established a relational bond with certain conditions and stipulations attached to it. You'll often go have a meal together. Because we even tend to celebrate relational bonds with meals. There's a relational intimacy that happens at a table, isn't there? This relational intimacy is demonstrated in meals, and it's the reason why so many of our relationships are often built where? Around the table. Isn't that why so many of us know that sitting around a table and eating a meal together as a family or as friends is just different than picking up some fast food and eating it at TV trays? Isn't it? Because in the Bible, having a meal together is a picture of relational intimacy because that's how God has designed us. And so in our own lives, it's a picture of relational intimacy, having a meal together. In fact, there is a famous covenant which ties into this story that we're looking at today, and I'll tie together even more next week, in which there was a meal served when the covenant was cut. The Mosaic Covenant, the covenant made with Moses and Israel, was cut and the people ate a meal. So keep your hand there in Luke 22 and look back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24 certainly has bearing on this text. I want you to see here, as God has laid down in the last several chapters of Exodus prior to this chapter, um, he has laid down with the people the covenant, the several stipulations, the Ten Commandments, etc. He's laid a lot of that down. In Exodus 24, we come 
to the covenant-cutting ceremony, the point at which the covenant is cut with the people. And look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord have spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, now check this out, and ate and drank. Do you hear that? God makes his covenant with them, and he brings them if you will, almost to this heavenly scene. And as they are there in the midst of this covenant being made with the people, they eat and drink. Why? It's not like Moses just throwing it in there, but because, by the way, they had a meal. This incredibly heightened passage of them standing before the Lord of heaven and earth, making a covenant with them, seeing heaven, in a sense, right before their eyes, seeing the Lord in his glory, if you will, right before their eyes and not being killed. And as they're standing there, Moses just throws in, and by the way, they had something to eat and drink. No, it's not incidental. It's this idea that they now had fellowship with the Lord. They ate and drank because they have this relational intimacy that's been created by this covenant with the Lord, which they had not had prior to that. This has no small bearing on what we're reading in Luke as Jesus is about to go to the cross and make a new covenant in his blood for his people, and he sits down with his apostles, and before he does that, he says, listen, we're at the Passover meal, and I want you to know I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. I'm about to establish a covenant with you of great relational intimacy. The new covenant in my blood. We're about to have a kind of fellowship together that you could never know apart from what I'm about to do. And it's going to be symbolized by a meal. So Jesus is enthusiastically desiring to have this Passover meal with the disciples because his hour for cutting the new covenant in his blood has come. Look at Luke 22. Go back there and look at Luke 22 in verse 19. 
And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus knows that his mission is to cut the new covenant in his blood. It isn't going to be cut in the blood of bulls or goats or rams. It's going to be cut in the blood of the Son, the Messiah himself. He knows that's his mission. So what is the content of the new covenant? Because if Jesus is cutting this new covenant with us, and if that's what this meal is about, is a remembrance of the cutting of this covenant with us, then what is the content of it? Keep your hand there and look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to see the promise of it. Though this is fulfilled, and you can read this co- of this covenant as well in Hebrews chapter 8, I want you to see it promised because the apostles, when they're receiving this meal, did not have Hebrews, the book of Hebrews yet. Okay, so they're going off of Jeremiah 31, and I want to read there to see the content of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, and in verse 31 is where we're going to be. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant we just read about in Exodus 24. I'm going to make a new covenant, not like that covenant. Not like the covenant I made with Moses and their fathers in Exodus 24. Why? Because it's my covenant, if you finished it, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, they broke that covenant. This will not be like that covenant that they broke. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. See, I had written it on stone tablets, but they couldn't keep it. So I will write it in the new covenant on their hearts so that they will keep it. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. See, in Israel, you'd have to say to each other, know the Lord. But here in the new covenant, you'll no longer have a congregation of people saying to one another, know the Lord, because that new congregation of people will all know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What God means by remembering their sin no more is not that God becomes divinely forgetful. The God who knows all things can't even choose to stop knowing all things. You understand that, right? Because he would cease being God. What he's talking about here is, I will not hold their sins against them. Do you hear that? I'm going to forgive them and no longer hold their sins against them. That's the new covenant that Jesus is announcing in Luke 22. Jesus has come to cut that new covenant that Jeremiah promised. 
in which we receive forgiveness of sins. And we remember that at the Lord's Supper. Jesus knows he's about to suffer unto death for his people to cut this covenant with him. That's why he says, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. This is a substitutionary death in which Jesus goes to the cross in our place, absorbing the wrath of God due to our sin upon himself. That's why Isaiah says in 53.5, speaking of this one who would come, this one who comes from Jesse, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Hear that? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah puts all that in the past tense? The prophecy is so certain that he can speak about it like it's already happened. And here's Jesus fulfilling it. Jesus knew his mission, and he deeply desired to reach this point He deeply desired to reach this point in which he could share his last meal with them and offer them a symbol, a token of his covenantal and atoning love for them. But I want to push a little deeper because Jesus says something to his disciples that's interesting. If you look back at Luke 22 and verse 14, actually in verse 15, he says this, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired deeply passionately, if you will, desired to eat this Passover, now notice that, with you before I suffer. Now all 12 apostles are present here. Though Jesus says clearly one of them is not whom he's eating this supper with. Though he's present. We'll get to that in like four or five weeks, okay? But you get the point. We'll speak about it just a little bit this morning. I deeply desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why with you? Further, why is his blood poured out in verse 19 and 20? Why is his blood poured out for you? And why is his body broken for you? Why is this with you and for you? He's speaking here to the apostles. Because these apostles were his own They belonged to him. They were his and he loved them. And I want you to catch this. Jesus did not cut a covenant with some hypothetical group of people he hoped might believe in him someday. He isn't on the cross going, man, I hope this works out. He's on the cross all needy up there going, I sure hope somebody believes all this. This is a nice plan. Wouldn't it really stink if nobody goes for it? That's not what's happening. Jesus did not shed his blood for a generic plan of salvation. Jesus was cutting a covenant with his people. He was not on the cross suffering the wrath of God against the hypothetical sins of hypothetical believers who may or may not ever materialize. He was on the cross cutting a covenant with his people. 
Jesus on the cross suffering the wrath of God against the actual sins of his actual people, those whom the Father had given him, everyone who would ever believe. Jesus wasn't there loving an idea or loving a plan on the cross. Jesus was loving a people on the cross. Look at John chapter 10. Jason read from this this morning. But I I want you to see this because it's important. John chapter 10 and verse 11. You're familiar with this text, but I want you to consider it anew. And what is being said here and the stunning nature of this. I am the good shepherd. Jesus speaking of himself. Taking Ezekiel 34, if you will, and applying it to himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Great, he lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Here he's condemning the religious leaders of Israel, just so you know. Verse 14 I am the good shepherd. See, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. Jesus is taking that to himself. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Did you hear that? I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who are they? My own. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's speaking of Gentiles, not Jews. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now some people begin to object to this. Look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in spence? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. In other words, you keep speaking in all these riddles we don't understand. Are you the Christ or not? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered, verse 25, answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Why? Why? The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you didn't freely choose to. Is that what he says? You do not believe. I I want you to, I know you might stumble on this. I know I did. You do not believe because why? Can I see it? You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. You do not believe because you were not part of my sheep. That's a stunner, isn't it? We don't come together at the Lord's table to remember a plan Jesus made. We come together to remember his covenantal and atoning love for us as his people people who were on his heart and mind at the cross. Do you know what all this means? It means that when Jesus is at the cross, he doesn't have in mind a plan. He has you in mind. He is on the cross paying for your sins, thinking of and loving you. 
Not a generic plan. But his actual sheep, his people, he's loving you there. And the first object of his love in this passage is his disciples or the apostles. Look at Luke, or John 13 because this is the same Passover night. It's the meal just before John 13 in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, that's the same night, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now catch this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We could preach a whole sermon just on that verse, couldn't we? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost, to his death on the cross. That's how he loves his apostles. That's why he eagerly desires to eat the meal with them. He loves them, they're his sheep. He's giving his life with them in mind. Peter, James, John, they're on his mind when he's on the cross. His sins, I mean, excuse me, their sins are what he's paying for on the cross. Look at John 17. John 17 and verse 1. This is the last, still in the last evening of Jesus' life just before his betrayal and arrest this same evening of the Passover that we're reading about in Luke 22. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And I was talking about the hour of his death. And for Jesus in the Gospel of John, that's his glorification is his death. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now notice this. Jesus saying, I have authority over all flesh as the Son of God, as the Son of Man. All flesh To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Isn't that interesting? You've given me authority all over all flesh to give eternal life to all, right? End of sentence? No. To all whom you've given to me. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now look what he says in verse 6, because he's talking about his apostles again here. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. There's this whole world of people. I've manifested my name, your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Who's he talking about? The apostles. How do I know that? Look down at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. See, I'm going to be on the cross. I'm not going to be able to keep them any longer. I want you, Father, to keep them for me. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except, hear that? Except the son of destruction, because he didn't freely choose me. That's not what it says. That the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Jesus loved the apostles the Father gave him. They were his own, and he loved them and saved them to the uttermost, except one. Do you hear that? Except one. Jesus did not save Judas. He didn't save Judas. Why? Why didn't Jesus save Judas? Because the, the Father reserved Judas for condemnation for his sin to fulfill the Scripture. The Father gave Jesus these other 11 apostles to save them, but he gave Judas to Jesus so that Judas would be condemned and thus fulfill the Scriptures in his betrayal and be the son of perdition. You might object, that's not fair. Does that sound unfair? Why didn't God give Judas to Jesus also? Now first, let let me say this. Judas was not an innocent party here. He deserved condemnation for his sins. He deserved it. But I, I want you to hear this. None of the apostles were innocent either. In fact, as we go on in Luke 22, just after Jesus announces that Judas will betray him, they don't know who, which apostle. They start going, well, which one of, it, of us is it? And then as soon as they say, which one of us, of us is it? They immediately go, and by the way, when we're in the kingdom, which of us will be the greatest? You think they're missing the point? None of them deserve mercy. They're all guilty for their sins. Nobody deserves mercy. So let's play, stop playing the that's not fair game. Salvation is not justice. You hear that? Salvation is not justice. Damnation is justice. If you want to play the that's not fair game, it's not fair that everyone doesn't go to hell. Salvation is mercy and grace. We wouldn't be, or we shouldn't be asking the question, why, did, why didn't God save all the apostles? We should be asking the question, why did God save any of them? Read the story. These guys are not heroes. Why did God save any of them? Further, Jesus doesn't say Judas rejected the plan we made of his own free will. Now, did Judas reject the offer of salvation in Christ? Yes, of course he did. Of course he did. But what is the reason why Judas was not saved? The reason given here is that Judas was not given to Jesus by the Father for the purpose of salvation, but Judas was chosen as an apostle to betray Christ and thus fulfill the Scripture before he was even born. The Old Testament prophets told us he would. Got to chew on that for a little bit. Judas was not chosen as an apostle to be saved by Jesus. But why didn't God give Judas to Jesus to save? Did you hear that? Why didn't God give Judas to Jesus to be saved? The only answer I can give you, because it's all the answer the text ever gives me, is God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he'll have compassion on whom he has compassion. But that's not fair. The scripture goes on to tell me, who are you, to, O oh, oh man, to answer back to God? Has not the potter the right over the clay to make out of one lump of clay to use that for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? 
he's God and I'm not. Let me be clear about, though, this may sound like that's hard to swallow, but it's gloriously good news. Not that Judas is condemned. That's horrible for Judas. But it's gloriously good news that God doesn't give you to Jesus because he looked down the corridors of time and saw some wise decision on your part because you would never make one and neither would I. It's gloriously good news that Jesus didn't die for you because you somehow earned his favor because none of us would ever earn it. That's Jesus would never come. We didn't ask for Jesus to come, did we? God sent him. Just the opposite. God has mercy on the undeserving. Jesus went to the cross for people he loved to the uttermost, people who had been given to him by the Father. Here in his love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a wrath-bearer, propitiation, a wrath-bearer, satisfier for our sins. But Jesus' love is not for the apostles only. See, I've been talking about the apostles here. It's not for the apostles only. They are not the only ones who are his own. He has more people he loved to the end. Look at John 17 and verse 20. I do not ask for these only. That means the apostles he's been talking about. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you hear that? I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that include? Us. You want to read about Jesus praying for you? Here it is. The night was betrayed. Jesus, the Messiah, is in the garden, or at least on the way, praying for you, specifically. I don't ask for these only, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me. What does he go on to say here? That they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Now catch this. And loved them even as you loved me. Just that one phrase. I want you to just meditate on that all day. Jesus wants the world to know that the Father loved you the way he loved Jesus. The Father loves us even as he loved Jesus, his Son. And as if that's not all enough for us, Jesus' love for us drove him to desire above all else that all of us, both the apostles and all those whom would ever believe, all those whom the Father has given to him, would be with him in heaven. Why does he want us to be with him in heaven? Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That's 
with the Lord. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. He wants us to be with him to see his glory. Jesus could give us no better gift than to see his own glory. Can you think of a greater gift than seeing the Lord who created and sustains everything in all his marvelous splendor? See, he could give you the universe that he created, or he could give you himself. And the creator is far bigger and better a gift than his creation. This is what Jesus wanted for his apostles, and this is what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to have him, to have him, to see his glory forever, to know that the Father loves us even as he loved him. And this is why he eagerly desired to eat this meal with his apostles. As John 13, 1 reminds us, it was here that Jesus entered the hour when he would depart out of this world. And in his great love for us, he was about to be crucified so that he could save his own, so we could be forgiven for our sins, so we could be united to him and have the promise of being with him forever. The Lord's Supper is his last meal with his disciples as he goes to cut this covenant with them and with us. So the first reason that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week is because we want to look back. We want to remember the covenantal, sin-atoning, life-giving love that Jesus had for us at the cross. We want to remember that historical event because that's where our hope is found. At the Lord's Supper, we look back and remember that our redemption was accomplished. It is finished. The debt has been paid in full. So what's the application of this to us each week? The application is because the Lord's Supper pictures for us that our debt has been paid in full, because Christ atoned for our sin at the cross, because Jesus loved us so unrelentingly while we were his enemies, because of all of that, we see the Lord's table as the balm for weary souls. We come to the table not as strong and victorious Christians who deserve a crucified and resurrected Lord. We come to the table as weak and weary Christians who have no hope apart from him. We come as sinners who have failed. We come as those who may be born again and may believe, but who only make, ever make, just small beginnings in holiness in our day-to-day lives. But we know the table is open because the Holy One, Jesus, died for us. Even more, the table is open precisely to remind us that Jesus has died for the lost, the weak, the poor, the pitiful, the blind. And his cross was enough for them. So we take the Lord's Supper every week to be reminded that Jesus is enough for us. We take it every week to be reminded that his cross was sufficient to cover all our sins. And that apart from him, we are left to the just wrath of God against our sins. Finally, we come to the table every week to remember that when Jesus went to the cross, he went with us in mind. He went there for his people. 
You might say, though he did not want to die in the sense of suffering the wrath of God against him, he eagerly desired to keep the Father's will because he loved us that greatly. And we remember that at the Lord's Lord's Supper. So when your flesh and Satan stand ready to accuse you, it happens to you on Sunday mornings, doesn't it? You come to the table and remember that Jesus loves you and was eager to give himself for you. Now, as glorious as the good news is of remembering that our redemption has been accomplished by Jesus, that isn't the only reason we come to the table each week. There are two more, and we'll look at the second reason next week. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider what your Son has done for us and his great love for us, the kindness that you have shown us, the great love that you have shown us in him, the fact that you love us even as you love your Son, As we look at that, as we consider that, as we hear your word preached, and as we see the table and are reminded of our Savior's eager desire to love us to the end, to save us, to establish a new covenant with us through his broken body and shed blood. We pray, Father, that we would see the table as a constant, blessed reminder of the grace you have shown to us in Christ, of the great love and mercy and compassion that you delight to pour out over us. Pray that we would constantly delight in your Son and know our salvation is in him and him alone. Pray for those here, Father, who do not know you, who are not looking to Jesus for their salvation upon whom your just wrath currently abides, we pray, Father, that you would give them faith, that they would turn to your Son, that you would change their hearts so they would see the truth of Jesus and they would love him, trust him, and know he alone is their hope, that you would save them. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.